This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited to be speaking to Dan Zakay, president of Special Situations at communications advisory firm Sloan and Company. Dan represents companies and investors, including activists, in all types of contested situations, including proxy fights, hostile MA, restructuring, and short attack defenses. We're seeing a lot of short seller activist campaigns lately. He also works on friendly M&A and ongoing corporate positioning. And Dan, hopefully today is going to talk a little bit about how he's seeing activism evolving, uh, particularly when it comes to activists partnering with public companies or private equity firms to launch hostile M&A campaigns and hostile bids in some cases, as well as how the presidential election should impact both the level and type of activism and M&A we're going to see in 2021. So a lot to cover, Dan, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate you having me. Okay, cool. So, Dan, to start, you recently spoke in a panel where you were asked about the state of activism following a 2020 proxy season that was largely muted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And you said people are ready to read those 130-page decks again. And by the 130-page decks, for our listeners who aren't familiar, these are kind of the reports that activists often will submit the companies as part of their campaigns. Just as a side, I wrote this morning about a starboard value buying a 9% stake in uh, ACI Worldwide and uh, quietly wondered to myself whether a 130-page deck is being written by the activist fund there or has already been distributed to the company in question. But putting aside that particular example, uh, what what did you mean when you say people are ready to read those 130-page decks again? I guess I was mostly thinking about sort of around meeting with the proxy advisory firms, you know, ISS, Glass-Lewis, and a lot of times both companies and activists and investors do have these decks that are very, very detailed and very long. And look, a big part of our job as communication advisors is to help clients tell their story as effectively as possible, especially in the middle of a proxy fight. And when the pandemic exploded in March, dozens of campaigns either settled or withdrawn by activists. And for quite a while, the few campaigns that did move forward, it felt like every other paragraph that they talked about was either you know, on the company side, accusing an activist of being insensitive to the international crisis, or on the activist side, you know, trying to convince the market that a long underperforming company shouldn't get a pass just because of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know who was right. It's obviously very situational, but it, it kind of didn't matter because the bottom line was investors weren't interested in digging into the detail and nuance of proxy campaigns. Mm -hmm. There was just more important stuff going on Mm -hmm. and no one really felt the need to be analyzing every detail of a slide or, or no one really had the patience or the focus to be following these campaigns minute by minute, blow by blow. Uh, Mm -hmm. And now we're seven months later, the pandemic is obviously, unfortunately, still front and center in the news, but things have also normalized a little bit. M&A ticked up a lot over the summer. Mm -hmm. We've seen a number of activist positions disclosed over the past couple of months, many of which you've covered. It's kind of like where we are with sports, right? Things aren't totally back to normal. There aren't people in the stands, just like annual meetings and ISS meetings aren't taking place in person. Mm-hmm. Some GMs and coaches are getting cut some slack if they had key players out for COVID or whatever, kind of like CEOs and board members who are being cut some slack maybe too. But whether or not it's the same, sports are back and right. people are watching. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of feel the same about activism. They're, they're at least tuning in if they're not in the stands. And I think that you know that's going to lead to some interesting activity as we finish up the year and, and look at to the next year. 
but people are tuning in. You're referring to kind of the institutional investor base. That so, so you're suggesting that I guess that the institutional investors are willing to listen to an activist who has a big presentation or a campaign at a company, whereas during the you know March April timeframe it was kind of a crisis situation and they were just not willing to pay attention to the activists. And so the activists maybe never launched their campaign. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that it sort of goes both ways, right? You had companies who probably were able to maybe avoid an activist campaign because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And you also have companies who maybe were quicker to settle with an activist who they could have taken to a proxy battle and beat. And Mm -hmm. I was on both sides of those, frankly. And, you know, so I I think like anything that, that is sort of utterly unpredictable and really world changing, the pandemic is going to have a lot of impact and activism isn't the most important thing it's going to impact, but it's certainly not immune from fallout of, of the shift we've seen in the world. But People are ready to to kind of pay attention and get back to normal a little bit, I think, when it comes to a proxy season, at least next year. Okay, so one of the things that you had mentioned, we're seeing an uptick, at least in the last quarter, of M&A and a little bit of increase in activism. And so one of the things that's fascinating about the M&A and activism that we're seeing lately is this kind of tag team situation that I mentioned in my opening comments, which is basically we're seeing that a lot of these private equity firms doing their own activism, but also partnering with activist hedge funds and or activist investors, and even a situation where publicly traded companies are partnering with activist investors. So, for example, Kane, a PE firm of sorts, but also it's publicly traded, partnered with Center Investment Group, which is a sometimes activist fund, in an unsolicited bid to buy CoreLogic, a property data and analytics company. And then we also saw separately Elliott Management partnering with Veritas, a PE firm. The deal has learned that they're partnering with Veritas to launch a buyout offer for transportation and defense company Cubic, which led it to install a poison pill. And uh, curious to see how that will play out. So we also see uh, New Mountain Vantage, the public equities arms of PE firm New Mountain, launch a director contacts at Virtusa, while Cerberus, uh, you know, a kind of a PE uh, asset manager, is continuing to agonize Commerce Bank in Germany. So a, a lot of situations where we're seeing kind of these PE firms partnering with activists and or PE firms being activists. So Dan, you're involved in the first two of these high-profile, hostile M&A situations right now with an activist component, and you're involved on the one, on one with one on the bitter side and one on the target. I know you can't talk specifics here because they're ongoing situations, but just curious if you could kind of give us some sense of why you think we're seeing activist investors partnering with PE firms and vice versa. And then I guess as a follow-up to that, do you think this trend will continue? Sure. Well, first of all, these types of partnerships aren't totally new. We've seen activists partnering with PE for a while. Elliott obviously has a private equity arm. I've represented private equity funds in proxy fights before. Uh, But I I do think that this is a trend we're going to see grow. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are a ton of undervalued companies out there. That doesn't necessarily mean that they, they want to sell. And I think that if you are a private equity fund, or even, as you said, a public company or, or a strategic, partnering with an activist means that you get someone on your side who knows how to wage the public pressure campaign, who knows how to navigate the governance groups at the big, uh, the big investors, knows how to work through the process of preparing for and meeting with the proxy advisory firms. And if you're the activist, you get a partner who's a relatively assured buyer. And I think that there are definitely benefits for each side. And as both sides maybe become more comfortable with it and become more sophisticated in terms of 
how they look at it. I think you will see an uptick and, and you will see that line blur a little bit in terms of the fact that I think previously private equity funds, or at least the, the upper tier of private equity funds may have had some hesitancy to work with an activist just from a reputational perspective and from an LP perspective. And at least some of the funds seem not only to have gotten over that, but to have gotten comfortable themselves, either filing 13 Ds and making it clear that they're going to be pushing for change, or in the examples you mentioned that I'm not involved in, really running a fight themselves at at Mm -hmm. fairly high profile companies. And I think that from our perspective, Ron, you know, being a communications advisor, these are really interesting, fun situations. I mean, first of all, you have the challenge of explaining to the market why the partnership makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think there are still a lot of people out there who, when they see these partnerships, are naturally skeptical. And of course, the reality is each one of these situations needs to be evaluated individually, but that's an interesting challenge and, and, and somewhat novel. Uh, like I said, these have been around for a while, but as, as it becomes more of a trend, I think you're going to see the rationale for why this partnership isn't a conflict of interest or it's going to benefit maybe all the other shareholders. That's going to become more and more of a factor here. And then really when you take these on, the number of audiences you have to message to is much larger. For example, if you're talking about a proposed deal, the FTC could come into play, which is not usually the case in a pure activist campaign. On the bidder side, if one of the partners is a public company, that's a whole nother consideration. They have to provide updates on earnings and things like that. We do a lot of day-to-day PE work, just ongoing crisis management. And LPs are incredibly sensitive to what's in the press. If you're partnering with a private equity firm, they become a, a consideration. You talk about the, L, the limited partner investors in the private equity firm. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, Most of these funds have elements in their LP contracts that prevent them from going hostile. Hmm. So you have to be careful in terms of navigating that. If you're working with a private equity firm and they're partnered with an activist, if things go south and that activist is all of a sudden sort of using more aggressive tactics to pressure a company, at what point is that private equity firm maybe in danger of alienating some of its LPs or incurring some headline risk, right? So I think that's that's definitely something you have to worry about. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. On the other hand, uh, I feel like the private equity firm likes to partner with the activists because the activist has the skills and tools to be aggressive. You know, they have the relationships with the institutional investor base. They know how to run a proxy contest to elect directors that could help facilitate the hostile bid. But I could see your point also. That's very interesting that the, you know, I feel like the largest private equity firms, like you mentioned, they, you know, I would, I can't imagine seeing like a KKR partnering with a uh, Elliott management or something like that, a starboard in a uh, hostile bid or anything like that. I mean, they don't, it's this, I feel like it's the smaller private equity firms and uh, you know these strategic uh, publicly traded companies also that are willing to partner with an activist. But it, the activist brings these tools and skills to it that the P firm doesn't have. No, or and, I yeah, mean, absolutely. obviously, in some cases, the P firm is learning these tools themselves or using right. the tools themselves. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the smaller private equity firms, although there have been a number of those situations. I think it's maybe more specialized private equity funds that, that don't want to get involved in in a lot of the in the type of work that an, an activist is willing to embrace, whether that's, like I said, going through the process of writing an ISS deck or understanding that you have to be sort of aggressively managing the media, you know, all these things mm-hmm. that are inherent in every single public activist situation, they're not necessarily tools that a, a typical private equity firm has in their toolkit. And 
look, it, it can lead to obviously some very interesting dynamics and some real challenges, I think, for both sides. But there are real benefits. And I think you're going to see more of these. And I think typically with these, Ron, the stakes are just higher. This is not usually going to be a tactic that the funds or, or the, the private equity firms use when they're trying to get one or two directors on a board. It's just not mm-hmm. worth it. Mm-hmm. These are about M&A right. transactions. Incremental change is not the game. If you're going through the expense and the effort and the time of partnering with a public company or partnering with a private equity firm as, as an activist. So there's a lot of, of legal legwork that has to be done. And, and as I mentioned before, there, there, there are a lot of challenges that come along with the advantages, but it, it's just not something someone's going to do if they're going to be happy putting out a public letter and then getting a settlement with a standstill a couple of weeks later where they get a nominee on. It's, it's just not that type of situation. Mm-hmm. No, that's very interesting. I, uh, I obviously felt that these partnerships were more complicated, but you've made me think about a lot of other elements that I hadn't previously thought about. So it'll be interesting to see how these these tag teams continue in the in the months to come as we see M and A return a little bit. So I, on that question of you know whether we'll see M and A return, I'm curious to get your thoughts on you know we we have a hotly contested presidential election coming up. Fingers crossed, we'll conclude on November third or shortly thereafter. So hopefully we get a, a clear conclusion one way or the other. Dan, do you think we'll see a proverbial floodgate of M&A emerge after the elections conclude? And do you think we'll also see more activism, more of this hostile M&A, tag team activity? And we're already seeing a little bit of an uptick in M&A and M&A-focused activism in the third quarter this year, obviously from a you know major dip in the second quarter, but what do you think is going to happen after the election, assuming we have a clear conclusion? Well, I guess from a, a personal and professional perspective, I would say I, I certainly hope so. As advisors, we don't get paid to sit around and do nothing when there's nothing going on. So mm-hmm. we like deals happening. We, we like stuff happening. And, and certainly if there are contentious deals, then th- those tend to be pretty interesting. I do feel like there's going to be a bit of a wave once the election is out of the way. I've talked to a number of clients who feel like they either want to hold back on a campaign or hold back on a transaction on the public company side. And I think that makes sense. There's a ton of uncertainty leading into a presidential election, and that kind of spooks a lot of people. I'm certainly no political expert, Ron. I don't have the uh, the DC background you do, but our firm actually partnered with uh, SKDK in March, who's the number one public affairs firm. So I asked some of my colleagues there who've either worked at the FTC or are working on the Biden campaign, what their views were. And it was interesting because they reminded me that you know the FTC doesn't actually change for the first two years if Biden wins. And the SEC could change. And I think that there's definitely the view that under a Biden administration, there'd be more 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 active regulatory presence. And and what does that mean for activists? What does it mean for deals? I don't really know. But but I think from my perspective, more than anything, it'll just be that uncertainty being removed that Mm -hmm. hopefully leads to people getting more confident, launching things. And of course, it's pretty good timing when you think about nomination windows opening and Mm -hmm. really a chance to uh, have a pretty good proxy season. And I think there were about 130 activist campaigns in the fourth quarter last year. I don't know if we're going to get there this year, 
you know, the election is obviously more than halfway through the quarter by the time it actually happens. But we'll see, right? There could be a, a nice uptick. Maybe companies and activists will wait until the new year to get things going, but maybe we'll have a super busy December. Yeah, it's interesting because there's also this kind of school of thought that a lot of companies try to get their deals done immediately before an election because they're worried that changing administration after the election would make it more difficult with the FTC DOJ antitrust restrictions being tighter. But now, obviously, it would be too late to strike a deal and hope to get it approved before the election. So, yeah, I could see your point that they, they're probably waiting to get that clarity of what will happen after before deciding how to structure deals. Okay. So just on kind of a more activist side and uh, regulatory front, curious if you think the Biden administration versus a, a potential second Trump administration will mean for the regulation of activists. And, you know, we're seeing you know, the SEC adopted tougher rules for proxy advisors that impacted act- activist investors. It made it tougher to do uh, 14A8 shareholder proposals. The DOJ and and FTC, the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, have a proposal out that would reduce the amount of information the public gets to, to find out that an activist investor is accumulating shares. So basically, the DOJ FTC proposal, it's quite interesting, would exempt activists from an existing reporting threshold of $94 million worth. So if they own $94 million, they have to report. And the would change that if you own under 10% of a target company's shares, in most cases, they would not have to submit and file with the DOJ FTC, and that would not have to be publicly disclosed. And there are a few times here and there, the first time we, the public ever, and, and the company actually will privately get information that there's an activist accumulating, is through this HSR filing requirements. We found out about it through about Elliott Management's accumulation at Noble Energy, for example. And that led us to figure out that they had this ultimately unsuccessful campaign to try to block Chevron's acquisition of Noble. But this would be one area where you would see, if this is adopted, that you would see a more difficult to find out if an activist is accumulating. And now we're hearing that the SEC may, it's possible they may withdraw a proposal they introduced that would increase the threshold uh, for Form 13F filings to 3.5 billion from the current 100 million. If they do go ahead with that, we'll see what happens. It could mean a lot of activist investors, such as Jana Partners, Corvax, Landed Buildings, would not need to disclose their positions in quarterly reports with the Securities and Exchange Commission. We don't know if that'll be approved, but generally speaking, it seems like the regulatory environment, there would be uh, less requirements for disclosure from uh, activist point of view. So anyways, in a second Trump administration versus curious what you think would happen with the Biden administration. I, I don't really know. I don't think that that's going to fly either way. There are just too many people and powerful organizations who I think are pretty against that rule passing. Mm-hmm. And personally, I just don't think it's going to get off the ground. I, I think mm-hmm. that anything that gives activists the upper hand and, and allows them to be less transparent is, is going to run into a lot of issues when you talk about corporate interests and things like that. So my view is Trump or Biden, you're not Mm -hmm. seeing that rule happen. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And then you also have like the uh, Labor Department under Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia has proposals underway to make it harder for ESG funds and for investors to vote on activist proposals, you know, on shareholder proposals, 14A shareholder proposals, and just uh, vote on executive compensation issues. I read one comment letter, a planned fiduciary may be faced with a decision whether to vote on a shareholder proposal to approve an executive compensation package, you know, stay on pay, and they have to figure out whether the vote would have an economic impact on their plan and that the fiduciaries could come with two different conclusions saying that, you know, they only own like, let's say 0.5% of the company and a vote to support or oppose the executive pay package would could see them be able to say that it does not have an economic Im- impact on our plan and our investments. And especially a proposal that you see all these 14A proposals to, you know, have companies consider increasing the diversity of their board, or at least as they're considering nomination of director candidates, they should consider, you know, how do you say that that has an economic impact on your plan if you only own 0.003% of that company? This is also getting a lot of negative feedback in the comment letters from what I've looked at. What do you think is going to happen with that? Do you think that 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 will gain momentum and uh, could be approved in the months to come? Or it it seems to me it'd probably be killed in a a Biden administration. I I think that's probably right. More importantly, it feels like ESG is just going to continue to gain momentum. Really, that's been something over the last, I'd say, four or five months that, that's been kind of hard to deny. It's going to take the form, in my view, of more and more focus on DEI, more and more focus on, uh, well, I guess specifically, you know, gender diversity on boards. We've seen mm-hmm. some movement in, in California there. Oh, but yeah. Th- this kind of stuff is, it, it's just here to stay and it's only going to become more prominent. And I- I'm personally not one of those people who, will throw myself on the tracks to say, oh, it should be about stakeholders over shareholders and all of that. But I think this is different. I think this is almost more about companies and specifically boards waking up and being attuned to the times. And I think that it's going to become a competitive disadvantage for companies as well as activists who don't recognize this. And you've already seen a number of funds kind of restructure themselves more in this direction, some more successfully than others. Mm-hmm. But you've seen it become part of fights, right, Ron? I mean, you've written about this a couple of times, and that's that's just going to continue to happen. And more of these funds are going to get good at it. And they're going to get better at understanding where there's an overlap between maybe a company that's a laggard here and a value opportunity. And that's going to be really tough. When that company faces a proxy fight and maybe they just haven't gotten their board updated you know, from what a 1950s board looks like, or maybe they just you know, haven't paid any attention to ESG principles, that's going to be a challenge for them stepping up in front of Vanguard and BlackRock and ISS and Glass-Lewis and justifying themselves. So I really think that whichever way these proposals go from a policy perspective, mm-hmm. the broader takeaway is that ESG is is obviously here to stay and it's only going to become a bigger part of all of our lives who work in this industry. Yeah, it's interesting. There seems to be this uh, concerted effort to 
make it more difficult to invest in ESG and to support investors to support ESG principles. But you're right, the biggest institutional investors, the index funds, and even the activist hedge funds, like like you mentioned, are uh, getting into ESG. And it seems, yeah, I agree with you that that wave is, is here to stay and it is unlikely to shift the other way. And one point I would point out also that the uh, California governor, Gavin Newsom, recently signed a law, a statute requiring California headquartered companies to point directors from underrepresented communities to their boards as well, not just gender diversity, which they had approved before, which, uh, you know, apparently this is all going to be litigated. But regardless of that, uh, California clearly is moving into an even more ESG direction. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. So I just want to say thank you, Dan, for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Deals Activist Investment Today podcast, and we've been speaking with Dan Zakay, president of Special Situations at Communications Advisory Firm Sloan & Company. Thank you, Dan, for taking the time. Rob, thanks a lot for having me.